Welcome to our podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and Alicia Swamy are exposing mold. Today we are here with Cobb Home Builders, Bryce and Misty. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Rubino, the Mold Medic, and All American Restoration. The first and only mold remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Check out our show notes to pick up your copy of Michael Rubino's book, The Mold Medic, an expert guide on mold remediation, or visit allamericanrestoration.com to get your home assessed and get your health back on track today. Bryce and Misty Murfarians have been living in their self-built, hand-sculpted Cobb home for 12 years and have been off-grid for 15. They pursued Cobb to rediscover a non-toxic building alternative to find relief from debilitating multiple chemical sensitivities that Misty experienced while living in the city. Not only did she find total relief, but they found a wonderfully fulfilling, low-cost lifestyle as well. An important part of the relief came from the high-quality, diverse nutrient food from their food forest and Chinapa wetland-raised bed gardens, as well as the fresh air, exercise, and spiritual fulfillment of their off-grid permaculture lifestyle. They are now enthusiastic advocates for healthy living, natural building, as well as for permaculture and food force. Welcome, Bryce and Misty. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So how did you get into Cobb home building? Uh, Well, it was a bit of a rabbit hole, actually. We were exploring uh, off the grid by cottaging at Bryce's family has a cottage uh, near here. And we were visiting there every week, but living in the city. And I had multiple chemical sensitivities, among other things that were difficulties uh, for me in the city. And we loved it so much out in the country and off the grid that we decided we really want to keep doing that. So we did, we moved off the grid to the cottage and while they're sort of learning the skills, I found that my headaches were going away, my allergies were going away, I was feeling healthier, we were both feeling happier. So we looked at a way, how could we build something for ourselves that we could afford as young people that would allow us to keep doing that. So we researched for several years while we lived at the cottage, and then we stumbled upon Cobb because it was in... It was in a natural building book, and there was a footnote on building a Cobb bench. And we we read that, and we're like, what is a Cobb bench? Corn Cobb? What does that mean? Yeah. So that that led us a little further down the rabbit hole, which got us to, well, actually, uh, simply the book, The Hand Sculpted House, which is... um, yeah, I would say it is the number one recommendation that we have for anyone who's interested in learning about cob building themselves. Or basically. just any natural building. It talks right. about straw bale and adobe and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we loved the idea and we looked for a piece of property. We finally found something we could afford. And we found that being a wetland, it has huge resources in clay, which is, of course, what keeps the water up on the surface. And so we were able to harvest all of the materials from the property, which made it very affordable. We loved how it worked, but we found that as we did it, there was just more and more to love. So we got to it through it being inexpensive. And then we found great. It's also non-toxic. Great. It's also non-commercial. And all those things came in. And now it's kind of a way of life for us. We sculpt 
all year round every year because we love it so much. We even put aside a little bit of extra mud in the late fall and, uh, you know, just the beginning of winter so that we can still do some mud work even in the depths of winter. So we get the odd plastering or, or a lease paint up or what have you. That's amazing. It sounds like, you know, in the next five to 10 years, we'll be living in a Cobb mansion. I don't think we're going to go that big though. I think we're, we're happy with the, um, the it's a very well ornamented cottage. That's, that's, that puts it perfectly. Yeah. Tiny castle with lots of sculptures. Yeah. Yes. One, one right above my shoulder. We've got a bird up on the wall. That's the, uh, the that's, that's our interview sculpture. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And I love how you guys built that whole mosaic in your home. Very classy. Thank yeah. you. It's just been in the back of my mind because you guys are from, um, are you living on the outskirts of Ontario? or? That's right. We're actually in Midwestern Ontario, sort Cent of in the center of, Central Ontario. Uh, sort of away from the Great Lakes habitation zone and just, just a little bit away from that. So we're only about an hour or so from Toronto. Okay, great. Now, I'm not a climatologist, but every time I think of Canada, I think of brutal, brutal winters. <laughs> am I right? <laughs> I hope I am. Uh, but a little bit. A little bit. It's, mo it's very consistent with any of the states that are near the Great Lakes. They're almost the yeah. same climate. Maine has pretty much the same weather. We get a little bit more snow. But um, going a little bit north of us, people think, oh, that's really up north. And then, of course, that's nothing to the more northern extra provinces. North of us, so. yeah. It's pretty temperate, but we definitely get about six months that you have to consider heating in. And we get a serious winter for about three months. How are you guys holding up? How's the home holding up during the winters? The home is great. We've learned a lot over the years in terms of design, how to, how to design to make it work. When it comes to Cobb, Cobb is monolithic. So it has no gaps or cracks, which is great because our main heat loss is through wind gaps. We live at the end of a big farmer's field. So we are in a forest, but the farmer's field gathers up the wind and the snow, and it basically sucks all the heat that you can produce in the house away from the house. So we dealt with that with fence, snow fences and hedges to buffer the winds and as much tree cover as we can do and still have solar gain. We've prioritized solar gain. So that means we've got all of our windows facing south and east and just a little bit going into the west. No window coverage whatsoever on the north. We have a straw bale wall on our windward side. So that buffers the wind. But we also learned how to make cob that would not have seams in it. Our first house, we had leftover timber, uh, lumber from uh, old stick frame. So we built it kind of stick frame because that's what we knew how to do at first. But we found that the way that the cob would bond uh, or not bond with the lumber would leave microscopic cracks in between the layers, which air couldn't get straight through because we plastered the inside and out. But um, wind, very strong winds could push through it and again, steal the heat. So we learned how to make really smooth and curving walls. Well, again, we layered many layers. So we've got a tiny building in the middle and then rooms that kind of come concentrically off of it so that you're closest to the hearth in the middle of the house. And then as you get further away, it's cooler and cooler rooms. So you use the rooms that way. We've learned the values of plasters as well so that we can actually seal up what's, mm -hmm. um, what's sculpted first out of the cob, following that up with, a, um, with an earthen plaster, fills in all the gaps and cracks and makes sure that it's waterproof and uh, windproof as well. Mm -hmm. But what's really great about cob is that whatever design you do, you can live in it. And then anything you feel like, well, you know, this could be better or different, 
you can sculpt it. So it's not one single design that you're just kind of trying to make do with, that you can evolve the design as you use it and as your needs change. So we have originally, our house didn't have as many windows as we'd like. So it saved heat, but it was really dark. And because we're off the grid, we wanted more light. And as we built the outer rooms, we found that basically every time you add sort of a greenhouse space between a building, you're warming what's inside up a zone. So that's good for gardening, but it's also good for houses. So we basically built a greenhouse that wraps on the solar side of our house so that the inner house where we're sleeping and spending most of our time in the really cold winter, it stays really snug because there's not much air exchange, but there's also an opportunity for all the sun to come in the windows and get stuck in the, the, the massive size of the cob and the mass holds heat and then re-radiates it. So that's a good strategy as well. We've been throwing around this term cob, 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 but what exactly is a cob home? What is it made out of? Okay. Earth so is we, the short answer. Well, we just heard your last podcast, I think was about a rammed earth brick yes. um, or adobe brick. adobe brick. It's like that, but instead of forming it into bricks and then laying a brick house, you sculpt it. It's the same materials, although sometimes uh, fiber is added to it in, in cobbing you add a straw or uh, chopped fibers like um, animal manures. You basically make an adobe blend, but you lay it on the foundation while it is still sculptable. So we say wet, but what we really mean is like, you know, art class modeling clay, but it has fiber enhanced in it. And you lay the bricks like bricks, but they're still soft like Play-Doh. So you can tie the bricks together while they are still in their non-set form. And when it dries, it all becomes one solid brick. So if you don't interrupt it too much, you get a single brick, the shape of your house. Indeed. I I think I should take it back a little bit further. It's, It's also, it's fundamentally, it's made from clay and sand and fiber. So in essence, this means that it is available anywhere on the planet, uh, and there are a lot of places on Mostly. the planet. Mostly. Yeah, where, where clay is. Mountain. Yeah, anywhere on the planet where clay is, this sort of housing is available. And that's, there's, there's Google Maps, so it's very easy to, to just look that up. But um, yeah, being so many places, if you have clay in your soil and you have sand in your soil, the chances are very, very good that you can simply choose some subsoil and mix it with a little bit of water and a little bit of fiber, grasses or some straw, in essence, dance that mud into a mixture that is suitable for making a house of. Um, And this is the traditional method going back literally thousands of years of just using the mud that you have. And the simplest guidelines support that. Basically, if it stands up uh, while it's sort of a wet mass, chances are very good that it'll continue to stand up as a house. Because it only gets harder as it dries. Right. So it is very accessible to people who don't have fancy equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, like Bryce said, it is mixed by foot because you've got your weight to, to mix it with. So you basically put it on a tarp and you stomp on it until the materials are mixed. Uh, you can use, you know, cement mixers and stuff like that, but you don't need you don't to, well. and it's not as good. And then you apply it by hand. So it's something that's really accessible to people who really need housing, where you don't have all of the technology or fuel to run the fancier things. But it also makes you really connected with your house, which means you can make it very custom to suit yourself and you can remake it as it needs to be done. So it doesn't create this knowledge gap 
between the builder and the person who's going to maintain the home. It's, it's fully uh, sculptable even afterwards. So in fact, you could take a spoon and scrape out a new portal in the wall if you'd like that, or um, yeah, scrape out a new shelf or what have you. So I mean, 100%. Or if you dent it, you can simply moisten it again and put some more material in there. We, we like to say around here, a little bit of dirt cleans up everything. And that's basically true, because if you, if you damage the home at all, you just go out and make a little bit more of a mud mix of the right type and patch up that, that little bit and then you know, paint it over with an earth, a lease later in earth paint and everything looks back, back to normal. So taking a little bit of damage on a cob home is, you know, it, it still hurts the ego a little bit, but you can let that go by because it's so easy to fix. So it costs nothing, just a little bit of time. Right. Eric is wondering if you are aware of what caused your multiple chemical sensitivity. Ah, uh, yes. I can say it was definitely a huge variety of things, but building materials were definitely one of them. I lived in a um, 1950s house in the city, so it had, you know, lead pipes and lead paint and stuff like that. Obviously, every house that's been for a very long time has mold and stuff like that that develops. Um, but I do find that I have the strongest reaction to new building materials. So I simply can't be around new carpet or drywall or paint or adhesives, basically anything you would build a conventional house out of. So that's why I really love Cobb so much and why I credit Cobb with a huge part of my living a healthy life now, because it's completely non-toxic. I mean, you can put toxicity into soil, so it has whatever your subsoil has. But clay is um, detoxifying. Its very nature is detoxifying. Um, it also is humidity regulating because it, it works like a humidor. It, it, uh, it's hygroscopic, so it wants to always equalize the moisture on one side of it and the other. So if it's very humid in your house, which is often the case because of cooking and showering and things, it can draw the moisture through it without, being, without itself being wet and dry it out with the air from the other side and vice versa, it breathes. It has a, an ability to move air through it. So that keeps it very fresh. And it's also the only thing that is in it that is subject to rot is the actual fiber within the mix. Because clay works as a preservative, there's nothing exposed to the air or rodents or anything like that that would gather up mold and things like that that becomes a, a problem. So I would say that that's a huge part. Also just like city air and laundry detergents and like basically everything, but it is facilitated to have a life free of those things because we were able to build a cob house that we could afford and therefore live in the country affordably. Yeah, that was interesting. We were, you know, thinking right away, like how they're building with these cellulose-based materials, the fibers, how is that not molding? And I just wanted to ask you over the 12 years or however many years you guys have been doing this, have you had any issues with mold in your cob house? No, not really. When it, when it is laid, when it is still wet, the materials that are exposed to the air can actually grow mold on them. So if there's any straw sticking out of the wall, it will create a mold. It's not the same very toxic mold that is on plywood because it's a non-toxic material, whereas the stuff that is growing on plywood and, and, and that sort of thing, that's a mold that is resistant to that level of toxicity. So it's a less harmful mold, but it's also something that only lives on the surface 
while the material is wet and you can right. tell right. when the material dries completely and it will remain dry because it is so massive it takes a huge amount of water to actually saturate it when it dries out the mold dies dries up and comes off you can just brush off the wall and the surface comes off of it and it won't grow it again but awesome. if you have a sink or something nearby that the surface is getting wet all the time a surface mold could occur in which case you wash it down with borax course, and it yeah. gets pulled into the matrix of the clay and it makes the clay non moldy we don't build things so that there's always water hitting it but if you did for example have a sink surround that you were going to have cob there you would seal it yeah. and therefore avoid that problem in the same way as you would seal wood or drywall or anything like that the, the real secret of cob is just to keep it dry in essence because it's only at risk of any mold when it's wet and even then only if it's not treated with with borax or other salts or something to make it or yeah. lime as well uh, yeah. to make it um waterproof and moldproof yeah but another benefit is that it's so sculptable and affordable that if you ever have a, uh, an area that got damaged for, for example if you had your your roofing leaked or something like that you can just cut away the damaged material compost it outside and fill it in fr with fresh material so there's no cost loss or anything like that but we've had very little issues only you know on the exterior of the building where there's a drip that we didn't foresee or too much wind damage or something like that you can scrape it away and put fresh material but usually then you address the problem by making a wider roof or putting a ceiling on that spot got it and what is the roof made out of how did you guys construct that well they're all different buildings so we constructed them as small individual buildings and then like added on and it was all salvage material. So the roofing is different from one part to another based on what we had available. We've used a uh, rubber membrane for, uh, for one section. We've used recycled metal roofing for another section. Um, what else have we used? But that's all over top of planking. We've reused right. um, two by fours or two by sixes in lieu of plywood that you'd normally use in a roof so that we can use all solid real wood. Um, non-toxic wood. Non-toxic wood as well so so that we used salvaged wood in that the various different membranes on the outside are depending on which roof we're on some of the flatter ones have the rubber membrane for a living roof and then we've also we've experimented with more conventional roofing materials but didn't find them very beneficial uh, so we've basically gone to just using um, some recycled rubber membrane that we had and any so well. other yeah. lesser material like the sheet metal we put the metal down and then put rubber and then a living roof so that oh, yeah. it is covered up and cool and things like that now you can probably see uh, behind us where we're doing the interview we have the section of the house we built as the, the last addition and was a timber frame structure uh, so this is all natural wood around us but in several other sections of the house that was basically one of the few costs that we did have on the home uh, for a total of about 850 dollars in actual like expenditures about four hundred dollars total of that was the uh the wood that we were talking about mostly in two buying by six yeah buying and planking for the flooring for the second story can you guys talk about maybe the difficulties that you were having with traditional materials for the roof well one of the ones that we tried uh, because the the material that we the sheet metal that we used was recycled so it had some fastener holes already in it that didn't coordinate with the way we were fastening so we tried just using a, a sealant uh, silicone or something to spot seal it but it wasn't a hundred percent so we tried using uh, tar paper uh it's called like water and ice mm, yeah 
sticky asphalt and sand type roofing. And first of all, we have a huge wind pressure here. So peeling was an issue, but more so when it heated up in the sun, I would get a headache from it because asphalt is one of those things that, again, the smell of it, we were able to mitigate that by putting a living roof over top of it and that it absorbs what comes off of it. But um, more importantly, it keeps it cool so that it is not uh, off gassing all the time. But basically anything that you can smell as a, as a building material, it gives me headaches. It's off gassing. Right? It's off gassing so uh, that we try to avoid those things. I wouldn't say that it's 100% and we have a lot more research to do in natu- natural building materials. But I'd just like to put out there um, in our province and lots of the other states as well, Phragmite reeds, reed grass, is considered a huge invasive problem, but it is actually one of the best roofing materials out there. We're not experts at it and we don't have the kind of pitch of roof that would be ideal for it. But in future, that's what I would like to use primarily because it's it's, it's insulating. And it's one of the longest lasting roofs. And it, of course, is completely non-toxic because it's just high silica grass. And once again, highly renewable so that if the roof is damaged, you can compost it. So I'd like to see a lot more research in that direction because the the art has kind of been lost over the years. But it, it definitely is where I would go if I had my choice of all roofing. You know, we've been feeling the effects of climate change in these last couple of years and it seems to keep ramping up. Now, can you tell me, do you think that your home would be able to last, say, through like a, a major flood or just anything major climatically? Do you think that it would be able to um, withstand something like that? Certainly. We've actually had two tornadoes in our area that felled massive forests and lots of buildings. We sustained no damage whatsoever. The worst we've ever had um, weather-wise is that we put some new roofing on and had a windstorm within the same week and it peeled up the edge a little bit. Our major asset in uh, withstanding those sorts of issues is that the the land situation that we have is very good for draining. So we're on a hill around a wetland. So any huge amount of water is directed away from the house um, and kept in the wetland. And we have landscaped the um, surround of the house to be optimal for channeling water that comes from the uphill and goes around us. But also we just have very little to be damaged. It's a very rustic design and it is the bare minimum that is necessary for comfort so that there isn't a lot to damage. We don't have a cellar around here. Most people's cellars are flooded and a lot of people say, oh no, did you get that flood? And we're like, no, we don't have a flood because we we built above ground. And yeah, the, the drainage, the soil around us is very high in aggregate and sand. So that works to our advantage as well. But just site location, I would say, is the primary reason uh, for it it being quite resilient. Cobb itself, according to our research, you know, we haven't had uh, the odd tornado and uh, rainstorm to pass by. Apparently, the one thing it doesn't withstand is flood. So, like, if it's well, no, if its it feet does, get though, thoroughly because... wet for a very long period uh, yes. of time, if it remains time, flooded, remains wet, uh, the bottom of the wall can sort of saturate and that can wash away the wall. 
But um, yeah, temporary water rises. It's, it's fireproof. It's basically windproof, uh, provided the roof is well anchored down. And it's also very massive, so wind right. is not a huge issue. Yeah, like yeah. we consistently get uh, blizzards in the winter time, so that's like hurricane force storms plus snow, mm -hmm. and it is great for that because it's very um, earth hugging. So the snow uh, kind of goes up and over and surrounds the house with insulation. Again, it's very massive, so there's no issues of wind getting underneath our house and lifting it up. Well, we have a lot of glass, so I wouldn't want to have too bad of a storm. But again, the site location is um, very protected, so I think that's beneficial. And we've done a lot of hedges and edges to control and uh, direct the wind so that the, uh, the, the snow load is nowhere ne near what it used to be. And uh, yeah, the wind itself has been mitigated quite a bit by the, uh, the food forest and the fences and all the other things we've added. Right. And aside from that, all of the roofs are supported with a timber frame structure. So even if any of the cob were compromised from extensive flooding, which again, we've had numerous hundred year storms in the last few years and <laughs> have no problem with them. But if there was any damage to the um, bottom of the cob, it would be superficial because the roof is supported by timbers. So you're a chef. You, you guys are both chefs. Yeah. Yeah. When we were working in the boats in the city, we were both working as chefs. So uh, we basically left a life of, uh, of cuisine to, um, well, in, in essence, it was still to find food. I mean, we came out here looking for good food and good natural cuisine and, and sort of, you know, where food comes from, like authentically. So, uh, so yeah, that was one of the, the important aspects of getting into farming for sure. Uh, welcome back. When you say the city, what city was this? Uh, we were in Hamilton, Hamilton, Ontario. Yeah, I was just curious uh, if the uh, sun was heating up the roof and causing some kind of fumes. Did you put a, a vent up at the apex of the roof so that you could open it and use the convective airflow to draw it yeah. out? We do have a vent up at the top of the house, and it does help to make sure the, um, the uh, currents do continue to flow. It keeps the house cooler in the summertime, and we tend to close it up for most, time, most part in the wintertime. Uh, but this was on a lower overhang roof, so it was right outside of windows. So it was at right. window level on the second story. So that's why we uh, cooled it down with a living room. Awesome. And I, I wanted to just ask some questions about your food production. You guys are totally living right off grid for the most part. You're cultivating the land. You're using solar power for your energy. You're collecting rainwater. Like I, I just, I wanna, I wanna get into the nitty gritty. I wanna know like how you guys are doing this. Okay. Well, uh, I mean that's a really broad spectrum of answers, but for the most part, we use permaculture systems. Um, and permaculture means essentially what it sounds like—a permanent culture. It's basically a philosophy of sustainability. It has a set of rules that are, you know, fairly easy to follow, but mostly it's, it's basically it's observe, observe nature, nature and work within natural systems rather than trying to use surplus energy to work against natural systems. Yeah, we, we've come to realize that sort of nature always bats last, as it were, and, um, you know, always, you know, will have her way. So it's a lot easier to set up your system such that nature doing what she does works to your benefit. Um, so we find for the most part, our food forest is, it's really only about 60 or, 60 or so feet across. I'm just looking out my window here straight at it. But uh, in that space we have, I mean, it's a huge list of plants, but we have hazelnut trees giving us a full like tree canopy at this point, cherry trees, apple trees, plum trees. Goodness, there's a grapevine. There's multiple grapevines. One of them passed away this year. Sad to see it go. But raspberry bushes, hascap, uh, uh, honeyberry bushes, the list really goes on and on. And I could, I could just keep citing them. But basically all of these food crops sort of grow 
on top of each other, just like they would in a forest setting, except you've guided the forest to be all edible crops. So um, yeah, we mostly focus on edible perennials, things like violets and of course uh, self-seeding annuals, things like borage and amaranth and lamb's quarters and magenta spreen, uh, uh, Canopodium giganteum, one of our favorites. So these things sort of, they self-seed. So at the end of every season, uh, they put down their own seed, which means they'll come back automatically, just like weeds. But when you pull up the weeds, you're actually pulling up you know, groceries in, in effect. So uh, you're weeding the other crops that you're planning to eat is picking spinach for today's omelet. So um, yeah, in essence, it's sort of just a multi-layered process. It makes the best use of, uh, of land, meaning that you can essentially grow you know, 10 crops in one spot. So, um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's why it works so effectively is, is because you get a, such a dense amount of plants in a different season, sort of all growing at once. And just by selectively managing which ones you pick, which ones you, you, you know, allow to remain, you get a prolonged season and it's basically just automatic food. The layering of these plants growing on top of each other, is that that Chinampa style? I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. It's Chinampa. That is one of our systems within uh, permaculture, but the what Bryce was describing is called a food forest. So it models things after the forest design, giving you extra layers of food stacking. But the chinampas is something we use in the wetlands, because like I said, where uh, we have wetlands surrounding us, we have very little high and dry ground, and we keep most of that for our animals to graze on, um, and for you know a few small gardens. Yeah, so property is fairly the, marginal. Right. So the chinampas are a way of expanding the growing to the wetlands, but for a dry land crops. But it's also a way of reducing the work on watering of things because mm -hmm. we don't have water on tap for anything. So when it need, when the garden needs watering, it's by hand, by watering cans. So it makes sense to have all of our vegetables that demand a lot of water growing with their roots actually situated in the wetland. So it's basically, it's kind of a basket that sits full of soil in the wetland that works as a in-soil hydroponic system. So it is basically waste branches that come off of the trees that we harvest for mostly uh, fences. You use the, the trunk of the tree is the lumber and then all the small branches that come off of it get layered in uh, swampy areas. And this is mostly in areas, not with like running rivers, flowing rivers, but like wet grass that is a, it's an oxalate high grass that's not edible by grazers. So we put the twigs in there and then we layer on hay or straw from bedding and then put on composted uh, manure and extra soils that we have in the garden. And then we grow our plants in it. So the plants can shoot their roots through the soil and into the water table beneath, meaning that they are self-watering. So we do basically most of what most people do as a garden, quote unquote, we tend to do in our chinampas. We basically- Because it's the open, there's there. no tree cover yeah. for shade. The, the chinampas works for growing things like uh, tomatoes and squash that demand a lot of space and a lot of sunlight, but we don't have that much space up in our garden. So we, we put them down there and it's been working really, really well. Mm -hmm. 
And most of these systems, basically, other than the chinampas, which we tend to put in uh, annual crops into, there's still a lot of perennials growing down there, wetland-specific perennials, like, like Jerusalem artichoke and a few others that grow so very, very well down there that um, we harvest them all the time in and out of the same season with our annuals. Mm-hmm. Are you guys basically harvesting more in like spring, summer, and then canning or saving things for the winter? Are these crops surviving during the winter? Or how are you guys feeding yourself year-round? We well, dry and preserve a lot, so there's, yes there's and always no. that. Canning is a very small part of what we do. Um, it's due to the salt, basically. Salts and sugars, which we try to avoid. Right. Um, so for health, we, we mostly want to eat whole foods and not have things very processed. Some of the foods, they're just suited to long-term storage, so uh, we specialize in those. For example, I had squash from our Chinampa on top of the fridge with no special storage, from last year until this year's midsummer, well, and they were yeah. still edible, but I just threw them in the garden anyways, because we'll have fresh squash coming in soon, and we have zucchini already in the garden. So that was one full year of eating squash to squash, and they were just sitting on top of our fridge, and that way you don't have to have all the salt or sugar of the preserving. And then mm-hmm. also we found at the beginning preserving there's only so many pickles you're going to eat. So, you know, where you might have had a whole salad for dinner, you're certainly not going to have just a jar of pickles for supper. And same thing with fruit. You might have it as a snack, but jam is not by itself a meal. So prioritizing things that keep really well over winter, like potatoes and onions and beets and uh, stuff like that is a priority for the winter time. But we are harvesting out of our food forest from when the snow leaves the ground, which for us here is about March, until the snow covers the ground, which is about end of December. And so there's things that we can eat in the food forest from that whole time. And then to extend the season, for example, late winter, we take seeds that we have um, saved or purchased in and we sprout them. Mm -hmm. So that our green vegetables are coming from freshly sprouted things. And that gives us a head start on sprouting things to plant in uh, the later spring. Uh, This year, we also did a lot of research this spring about um, overwinter systems, um, including essentially small scale, short term greenhouses, closures, that type of thing. So we'll hopefully be extending our season with um, a second planting in August, just to bring us a little bit later into the winter, with things like kale and Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, Brussels sprouts and that sort of thing, or winter hardy crops. Elliot Coleman is an author of a couple of books that as a guide to winter gardening, and he gardens in Maine, like commercially gardens in Maine, which has a very similar climate as here. And he basically talks about after everything would have come out of your ordinary garden bed end of summer, you plant down all the same stuff again, or like winter hardy things. So your beets and carrots and stuff, and you let them grow slowly at the fading end of the season. And as soon as winter is going to hit and actually damage them, you cover them over or you grow them in a greenhouse to begin with. And that covering over, it just puts the pause button on the growth so that the small amount of sunlight that you get is enough for the plant to mature. And you basically go into your greenhouse like you've got stuff in cold storage, but the cold storage just happens to be also growing. So we we do plan to continue that a lot more, but continue any gardener who's accidentally forgot some kale or Brussels sprouts or whatever in the mm-hmm. garden can find that you can pull the snow away. And in fact, the winter hardy plants are even tastier because mm-hmm. everything um, converts starches into sugars uh, when it's very cold. So you get very sweet beets and carrots and things like that. 
I can talk food all day. Food is my one favorite thing. (laughs) I'm a nutritionist by training. We were chefs when we worked in the city. I mean, we still work as chefs now, uh, but not as our primary job, but we're trained chefs as well. So food is a very important part of our enterprise. Absolutely. You know, I'm ready to come move in with you guys so I can take advantage of your food force. (laughs) We could teach you how to make a very small cob house very quickly. I'd like food forest for all. I'd like Absolutely. food forest to be every, everywhere and anywhere so that everyone has access to them. And, but, and they really could be if we wanted oh, that. This is one of those things. I, I'm a firm believer that um, spreading the food forest around is going to really help with the, uh, the climate crisis. Not only do we need to increase photosynthesis, but we also desperately need to increase the, uh, the tree story layer to help hold all of the carbon that is presently being released by uh, agriculture and what have you into directly into the environment without the tree layer holding that that carbon down against the planet we've we've got a serious atmospheric carbon issue and at the same time a serious depletion in soil carbon sort of all part of the same cycle so um yeah so significantly increasing soil carbon significantly increasing earth photosynthesis and doing that through multi-storied planting makes the most amount of sense especially when that multi-storied planting is edible for people so i mean like the that's where I advocate highly because oh, yeah. the food systems, especially in North America, are not very resilient against disasters, mm-hmm. as we have seen. Whereas and food forests are, food 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 are very resilient, but it also means that you can sort of put them out there and the person who planted it doesn't have to maintain it continuously for there to be value to come back to. Mm-hmm. So if you just, for example, had city uh, parks and uh, medians and, you know, the extra bits that municipalities hold planted to food forests, if every, anyone were ever in need or if a whole community could not get their supply chain met, there would be food that could tide people over. And I believe that people would find a lot of value in a community where they could maintain that sort of thing. So it creates a community togetherness because they're shared resources. I am 100% with you on that. And I think we're doing a lot of things wrong. And we can have a 20 hour conversation about all that, but I don't want to go there. (laughs) But what I do want to do is switch gears and just talk about water and heating and cooling and energy. Maybe we can just start with energy. So what are you guys using to be able to turn on the lights in your home? Solar power, almost uh, exclusively right now. I have some other plans for um, uh, wind and uh, pedal generation, but presently it's almost entirely solar. Uh, I'm not sure of the wattage that we're running right now, but I would say that there's a couple thousand dollars invested in solar panels and then a few hundred dollars invested in batteries to keep that uh, something we can store. So we we have solar during the day, but Mm -hmm. the batteries, deep cycle batteries store the energy so we can use the power outside of daylight. I've invested somewhere around $5,000 total into, and this is over the last 15 years, into our off-grid power source, somewhere around 700 watts generation and uh, enough amp hours to run a refrigerator and all of the lights and charge all of our accessories and devices, you know, our telephone and our computer, what have you. But that is very minimal. And we started with less and and worked like we got more solar panels and more batteries as we could afford it and as we established ourselves. It feels quite abundant now. It it definitely feels very abundant, but it's also very minimalist Mm -hmm. in comparison to an average Ontario home. By launch. Uh, So like there's no possibility I would be running a curling iron or something like that. Uh, amazingly that uses a ton of power but we can have a deep freeze and a refrigerator and of course lights in every room 
uh, and things like that. And when we need to, we can run a Dremel tool or, you know, what have you for that sort of thing. So but mostly we have just minimized our use of power and yeah. we do almost everything that we do by hand, mm -hmm. by preference, so that we don't need a lot of power. I say DC systems are pretty democratic. I think I learned DC wiring in grade six. When we get our land, you guys got to come out and teach us how to do all this stuff. <laughs> but I wanted to chat with you guys about your heating and cooling. So how are you staying warm in the winters and cool in the summers? Okay, so we use wood heat, um, but we also, like, we don't run uh, separate appliances. So everything that gets heated, uh, water and food and that sort of thing, is done with the wood stove. So we cook on the wood stove daily and the heat is kind of a byproduct of that. In the winter, we're stoking it a lot more often to keep it uh, warm, but we run the fire to uh, heat our water and to dry our laundry if it's wet out and things like that. Um, so that's the one appliance is doing all of that work and all of the rooms have a wood heat available in them. Um, mostly what we do is we just heat the inner house in the wintertime and the excess heat sort of radiates to the outer rooms but we heat up the rooms as we need them so that we're not wasting fuel so if we're going to spend most of our day in the dining room we put the fire on in the dining room uh, if it's very cold we need to supplement but we don't bother heating the opposite side of the house if we're not even going to be in there and cob plus the solar gain through the windows means that the rooms were not actively heating stays from freezing because of the heat cycle of the sun and the way that it gathers the heat. Yeah. So it's just an extra comfort like a radiant heater when we need that in the wintertime. One of the beauties of Cobb is that it holds heat. So it's it's not especially uh, insulative in the traditional sense like one thinks of in like case of fiberglass, but it um, it actually holds and retains heat with its thermal mass. So depending on the thickness of the wall, like for the uh, our initial 10 by 10 build, uh, the walls for that one start off as eight inches thick. So that basically meant that in the wintertime, it held up to eight hours of heat. But of course, the cold on the outside is also penetrating in. So this essentially means that four hours after the fire goes out, the house starts to cool down. So that's sort of and the... And it takes four hours after that for all For of... a fire to heat the house back up. So this is the, the cob itself uh, in a very small building. But, uh, but yeah, we found demonstrably that it was very, very easy to keep a fire going. And you learn to adapt to it fairly quickly when that's, that's your, your main method of keeping cool. You wake up once in the night and stoke the fire and go back to bed. But also, just like the electricity, we didn't just take our normal needs and then meet them in an off-grid way we adjusted to be more in tune with nature. So we actually just wear more layers of clothing in the wintertime and we work all day long and we find we actually get quite overheated working outdoors with no heat mm -hmm. so that we're really only heating the house for those occasional bits of comfort in between working outside. So it's yeah, not the right. same as a climate controlled house where you, know, you see people lounging in, in summer wear in the midst of winter because the house is so comfortable. We keep it cool, we allow it to stay cool because that's part of the body's natural rhythm. That's a necessary uh, connection with nature. And also we're in and out of the house all day long. So it's actually really inconvenient to have a super warm house and then have to layer up to go out and do winter things and then come back in and take all the layers off. So we basically just add one shell layer to go outside and then we take it off just as our ancestors would have done before there were windows or, or doors on on the openings. Now, of course, this brings us around to the summertime. Uh, that same thermal mass I mentioned earlier uh, has, has the, the 
I guess it's the also opposite. the cooling system. Yeah, the opposite benefit in summertime, but it's the, the same effect uh, in that the, the heat outside is trying to penetrate into the cooler building. Of course, the, uh, the coolness of the earth under the shade has a tendency to actually lose more heat overnight than it actually gains in the day. So the house, uh, there's a term actually in the book called coolth, you know, sort of the opposite of warmth, um, which describes how the house, you know, sort of stays cool on its own. And uh, yeah, add it's just a little bit. comfortable as the earth. It's like yeah. geothermal for, your, for your, your air. So add just a little bit of ventilation to take care of, you know, the solar heat that comes in the window still and these sorts of things. And uh, yeah, the house really does make itself um, uh, very comfortable automatically, even while we have a fire going in the summertime. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was just wondering if it would help to incorporate a whole bunch of empty bottles into the uh, walls of a cob house to insulate. It, it certainly could. It, uh, it definitely can in yeah. places. We do have a lot of um, bottle installations. However, we do find that just monolithic cob, that is uninterrupted solid cob, is quite useful in strategic places. So if you have a lot of mass where it's shady all the time, that can keep things really, really cold in the wintertime. But if you put the mass uh, in the sun, then you get more radiant heating from it. So we found that insulation to the north side is most important. And we focused on using fiber in the insulation. So basically the cob mixture, rather than having as much sand in it, has a little bit more fiber in it and that keeps it more insulating. But also the thickness of the walls is adjusted for, but you definitely can insulate with bottles. That's mm -hmm. how uh, cob ovens are insulated from their bases as you put in a, a bottle layer so that the heat stays in the oven rather than going into the, the base. As well, Misty mentioned, um, we don't have any windows on our north side. That's not quite true. We actually do have a few wine bottles from our wedding, which we sculpted into the wall to provide a little bit of uh, light on the north side. So there's just a little bit of uh, light coming into the original 10 by 10, a little bit of green filtered light from the north side. So we had some good, they're essentially really good double-paned windows, but um, the kind that'll never open. <laughs> uh, although we do have doors on every side of the house, and that's part of our cooling and ventilation system that for clearing the air and keeping the air cool, we can open uh, a door on opposite sides of the building, depending on the wind stream, and get a flow um, through, a flow through mm -hmm. anytime we want. And we can direct, each room has its own flow patterns. That, that's part of the, the design and how we, how the, house functions. What do you guys use for your water source? Uh, well, that's a multifaceted answer as well. For watering our animals, we have plenty of natural water. So we have rivers and streams that they drink from, and that's good for their health. Uh, we, When the water is nice and clear in spring and winter and fall, we can wash from it as well. So abundant for laundry and watering the garden. We drink from a well. There was a small, I dug a, a small well uh, when we first came on the property and our water, our drinking water comes from the well. And then we have rain collection and that supplies our shower so that um, all but the coldest season, even a little bit into the winter, but when it freezes really hard, we stop using the rain barrel system and we go to just having um uh, heated water heated water brought in from from the well now, we didn't mention with the uh, heating systems as well we also do have a solar hot water heater for that that uh, rain barrel shower we mentioned uh, and it's as simple as i think it's a hundred feet of black hose that just winds back and forth across the roof and um and then goes down to the shower so by uh, a little after 10 30 in the morning sometimes usually around till two three in the afternoon beautiful hot showers available 
I'm really wondering what your family, what does your mom and uh, Misty's mom think of, of this whole operation? Unfortunately, Misty's mom passed away many years ago. Uh, she was one of the, the financiers of this entire venture uh, due to Misty's um, inheritance that uh, allowed us to purchase this property in the first place. My mom is, is really quite, uh, quite thrilled. She's, she's come a long way in her own adventure in, uh, in sort of watching us in, uh, in the steps we've taken as, uh, as time has gone by. But uh, I truly do believe that uh, Misty's mom would have absolutely loved what we've done here. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was really beautiful. And, you know, what we have to talk about something that we don't really talk too much about because we're so used to our regular plumbing in our homes. Give us the 411 on composting toilets. I'd okay. love to hear more about it. <laughs> we use the term humanure, uh, and this is actually from an author. Uh, in fact, anyone who wants to learn more, I suggest you go and Google the humanure handbook, and it's human ur, just like it would be cow man ur. Like manure, yeah. but human. human. Manure, yeah. manure. And in essence, it's a, it's a composting system. We use, well, we use a, a couple of different methods of it, but in essence, a storage bucket, which we bring out to a pile, which we then That's, just... That sounds a little bit more low tech than it is. I, but, but in, in essence, I'm, I'm explaining it in the simplest of terms. We, we put our feces onto a pile <laughs> and we cover it over and we let nature break it down. And okay. It's, it's as easy as that. There's there's a few more steps. Yes. So there's, <laughs> there's an ordinary toilet that you use, like you're in an outhouse, but instead of it just dropping into a hole the, the way that it normally would have been done, it goes into a storage container. We usually use like a plastic tote or something like that. So it's underneath the toilet. And when you've used it, you put in uh, carbon rich material. So every time you use it, you, as we say, cover your work and you put on straw or wood shavings. And ideally, if it's mixed in with a little bit of compost, it's got the um, bacteria and things that um, break down okay. the chemicals that are in it, which will mitigate the smell. And we've also found a huge benefit in separating the liquids from the solids. Mm -hmm. So liquids are just going through a gray water filtration. So they go through sand and gravel into a uh, garden that is specifically designed for drinking up the extra nitrogen. And that the solid wastes are really very tidy and smell free if they're not sitting in liquids. So there's aerobic compost, which is where there's air in it and it smells like soil and then there's anaerobic compost and that where there's avoid. no air in it and that that is well soil is not breaking down properly it's, it's becoming right. toxic whereas um when soil is breaking down with oxygen contact becomes well it becomes high quality soil, soil. Compost very very quickly do you use a uh, light bulb or a heating system to keep the microbes healthy during the winter uh, no. no, we don't. We change it more frequently at that time and layer uh, the compost pile itself is built like you would build a compost pile for your garden. So there's lots of aeration in the pile itself and oh, yeah. we layer it with carbon material and it stalls in the wintertime in the same way as any other compost pile. But the volume, the area is large enough to store the entire winter's amount and hold on to all the liquids until spring composting yeah, okay. can begin again. But we've found that as compared to like cow manure piles, which will build up and build up, human manure is actually very insubstantial and will break down within one season. So one small compost pile is more than enough to just hold the winter compost until it can begin to break down again. And this is four of us using it, two adults and two children. And uh, yeah, frankly, I, I do believe that something like a barrel compost tumbler would be enough to handle the average family of four. 
Yeah, and they've got some nice designs there that are everything is self-contained, but it can also be very low tech and it works very well that Indeed. way. Yeah. I was sort of emphasizing the low techness of ours. It's it's tech enough to work, but uh but yeah, it can There's be There's tidiness as... that can be thought. It that not yes. everything has to be as rustic uh as an outhouse that you can also put in aesthetic details uh that make it just as palatable oh, yeah. to use. Easier and cleaner and better to handle. So how much does this cost a year to, to kind of run this operation? Like if someone wanted to quit their tech job and do this, would they be able to? Well, it's really hard to say because cost of living is very much increasing as time goes on and everyone's locality is, has got a different cost of An living. Individual variables but for change us, everything. I would say in Canadian dollars, it takes about $15,000 a year in the whole family to keep our lifestyle going. But that is, of course, with all kinds of wonderful luxuries like buying in produce when we feel like it and having leisure time when we want to have it and things like that but in terms of minimum cost you certainly could use the skills that we have to live a zero dollar cost you know except for of course you know the government will always have their cut for where you're going to purchase yourself but in terms of outside of the the land and whatever your land costs uh, you could you could definitely live for zero dollars. Mm -hmm. There is sort of a continuum of how much time you put in versus how much money you put in. So because we're at this every single day, it feels leisurely because we break up the work throughout the year. If you had to cram it in less time, it would feel like a lot of work. But basically, the less time you can spend on the farm doing the jobs and doing the stuff, the more money you have to put into the enterprise, but conversely, the more time you put in, the less money you need to put into the enterprise. So, and that's Canadian dollars, about $15,000, I think American, that would be substantially less, mm -hmm. but that is because our land taxes are affordable and because uh, we do have the ability to grow quite a lot of our food and we don't eat out or travel or things that cost a lot of money and we don't maintain a vehicle and that's a main major part of expenses of when you have a job you need a vehicle especially living right. in in a rural area so we we exchange not having those extra luxuries or having as much time as we want on the farm to do what we're doing and honestly, about a third of our total expenditures on the farm are on large animals. So if we were to not have horses and not have cows, it would yeah, probably cost... Yeah, and that's a luxury cost... that we have. Oh, yes. I mean, indeed, the dairy is, is a thoroughly enjoyable luxury, but, but in this, um, it's only available to someone who has the full time to dedicate to, you know, essentially being a, a dedicated dairy family. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, not, it's not for everybody, but that... Uh, but that's most of our actual dollar expenditures is yeah, buying, in, buying in animal feeds. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. I mean, so 15,000 Canadian dollars for a family of four. I mean, wow. And we basically only organic food. Um, we do eat a lot of bulk. Anything we can get, if it's organic, we get that. We eat a lot of fresh fruit, mostly from our garden, but we also purchase it in in the in season. And yeah, that's that's all still managed under that same that same price. I'm trying to think of other luxuries. We don't, we don't tend to spend on a lot of things but um yeah foods foods a big budget item but uh even that it's um, yeah but our food is nothing compared to the animal feed so right yeah, yeah someone just wanted to do it for themselves and especially if you wanted to be vegan and not to have any large animals then that would reduce the cost substantially as well yeah now of course the compost the uh the animal manures are significant 
benefit. They, oh, they yes. greatly they are, add to they the are worth the money, yeah. but it is like us spending money to invest in our organic farming by instead of bringing in fertilizers, we're bringing in feed and getting yes. the extra luxury of having a horse in the process. And of course, as we mentioned, horse, horse dung is especially good product for, for doing cob with. It's sort of the, it's next level, but uh, you, have to, you have to know about it in order to do it in the first place. But uh, yeah, it makes a spectacularly good sculptural clay, which Plaster. is really good for, for uh, all of Misty's plastering projects and murals and what have you. So, mm-hmm. so it, it's, um, it's got benefits that are uh, unusual and unexpected to... Uh, to yeah, you know, there are monetary animals. values that come out of that monetary expenditure as well, but it definitely mm. could be less cost. And I think most people could live cost-free if they had access to enough land and the materials from the land in order to uh, create shelter and food from it. The, the food forest herself, like our 60-foot food forest, feeds us significantly throughout most of the year. And frankly, if that were to be scaled up, you know, we could increase the uh, the diversity, increase the nutrients available, and um, yeah, increase the the crops, plain and simple, that uh, that we could harvest. So, uh, so the, essentially, the more uh, people plant food forests, the more likely this is to uh, to succeed. And ultimately, it's going to bring down everybody's you know gardening budget and what have you, just by having food plants available that just keep coming back. Yeah, that's amazing. And you also, I think I read that you guys also homeschool your children. And not only are you, you know, I'm sure giving them the curriculum that the state is mandating, but you're also teaching them how to live sustainably as well, I I assume. That's Mm -hmm. our our primary focus with education is teaching sort of the human skills for survival. I like that term there, but basically survival and thriving in nature the skills that, you know, teach you how to build a home, how to care for, you know, care for plants and what to harvest, what not to harvest. These are, you know, essential things. Well, they're important for the person who learns them, but they're also important for a community because what we're teaching them is to see value in things like mud and dung and stuff like that, which means they're going to see value in nature where other people might see a commodity, which is not good for anyone. You know, I think um, we're teaching our children to value Nike and Gucci and Louis Vuitton and, and not like we're losing that connection to nature. And I I remember reading something a long time ago where a lot of children don't even know where their food comes from. They look at a tomato and they're like, I don't know where that comes from. My mind was blown. Like, what is going on here? You know, we, we need to teach children and start with children the essential skills of human beings how have we gotten here how have we been surviving we haven't been on this monoculture pesticide laden food for for our entire existence you know this is probably in the matter of i don't know 50 to 100 years and we're seeing the ramifications of that the the complete disconnection from humans to the environment and um you know, it's, <laughs> it's contributing to our demise more so. But again, thank you guys for coming on. If there's anything else that you wanted to talk about or, or let our audience know where we can find you, feel free. You've got center stage. Okay. Well, we're, we're doing uh, YouTube right now on Ontario permaculture. Um, we're uh, having a lot of fun doing that, which is mm-hmm. great getting to teach people about, about permaculture in our very fun, quirky and musical ways. <laughs> Fundamentally, I really just love sharing the message that there are solutions and they don't require anyone else's approval that you can take grassroots steps and those grassroots steps do add up and they do produce benefits not just the ones you expect but additional benefits besides so all of the things that we're doing we 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 sought to find the resources that we need but what we found was a lifestyle that was fulfilling 
and being fulfilled and knowing how to do everything gives this wonderful sense of um, self-certainty and self-fulfillment that is what I think a lot of people are lacking when they're buying things in is a purpose in their life and the, the certainty that you can do it. And I just yeah. want to remind everyone that you can do it. It wasn't hard. We're not special that we can do this. I mean, we are special, uh, but everyone has the ability to make changes that affect the world for the positive. So. Take those small steps and start now. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, and you guys are definitely the prime example that you don't have to be Jeff Bezos to do this, right? <laughs> I don't think we're this kind of lifestyle. <laughs> no, he can't. You can do it. You can do it, buddy. <laughs> I know he listens. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Well, I really hope that you know we kind of wake up out of this this zombie zone that we're all in, where you have to have the five bedroom house and the fancy Lamborghinis and the yachts, you know, in order to feel self-fulfilled because we, I mean, we know that that's really not what we want because we look at celebrities and how self-destructive they are when they have all that. In other words, it's just not, it's not the, the meaning, the purpose, the, the drive behind life are not things. It, it's, yeah. it's about finding your purpose and what you like to do, your creative adventures, you know, being more connected with the land is definitely more self-fulfilling. It's no surprise that the words soil and soul have the same root word. Mm -hmm. Oh man, I like, you know what? You two need to write a book. And let me know when you guys <laughs> We're on it. We're on. You're coming out with these terms and these phrases that are just genius. But let us know when you write that book. We'll go ahead and let our audience know so they can go ahead and snatch it up and just read all that wonderful stuff you guys have in your mind from all these years of living off the land and, and just really understanding what life is about. So again, thank you everyone for joining us today. We had Bryce and Misty. And can you say your last name to our audience? I don't want to butcher it. Murfarians. Murfarians. What a great last name. Great last name for wonderful people that have completely changed the game in the way that they're living. They're not living a conventional lifestyle. They're living a very self-fulfilling lifestyle that is very connected to the land. We just want to let you guys know that it doesn't have to cost a million dollars to live this way. Um, and for those of you that are extremely sensitive, that are suffering in your conventional homes, well, this is a prime example that you don't have to live that way. You don't have to be connected to a city in order to find purpose and self-fulfillment. So thank you again for listening today. Please go ahead and check out our GoFundMe and Patreon pages to keep this podcast rolling. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today and we'll see you next time.